the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We know that from Scripture... We are made in the very image of God and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so you look at these connections and wonder to yourself just how deep do they go. And by that I mean when we talk about our relationship with God, we certainly understand it. We relate to it on the spiritual plane. But does it go deeper than that? Journalist Rob Mole joins us now. He's written a new book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. He has written uh, extensively on this topic, um, particularly related to health and health care issues. He's also editor-at-large with Christianity Today. You've also read his work, no doubt, in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. And he serves as communications officer to the president of World Vision. And, Rob, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. And it would seem at a certain level that the notion of there being a deeper connectivity with God would be a logical one. I mean, given the fact that he uh, breathed very life into us and that we are made in his image. That's right. That's exactly where I was about to go, was to talk about that image in Genesis where God forms the human being, forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, and breathes into him the breath of life. So certainly we are spirit and flesh, and our faith, our spirituality, our connections to God do not, are not, do not just exist in a kind of ethereal plane, but they, they go down to, into who we are as, as physical beings, as uh, part of God's good creation. There have been some interesting studies done, and we frequently heard this from physicians, and not those with an agenda. And I put that disclaimer in there because some eavesdropping on our conversation tonight, Rob might say, well, yeah, sure, these are Christian doctors, so they're primed to prove a point. No, physicians who who make no claim to any sort of religious affiliation whatsoever, but will say that they notice something unique and different about the patients who are praying patients, and that is that the recovery rate seem to be better, survival rates following uh, significant surgeries, things of this sort seem to be better, attitudes seem to be better, there seems to be a marked connectivity between the health of one's body and one's relationship or connectivity to God. In any of your research, have you seen that borne out in any sort of a a deeper scientific fashion? Well, you know, a survey of uh, HMO executives found that 94% of them believe that prayer helps medical treatment and speeds recovery of patients. Uh, Something like 80% or higher of uh, doctors say the same thing. Uh, I think that these people, you know, and I was a, I was a hospice volunteer myself and, and 
you don't you don't get around people who are dealing with physical illnesses who aren't also in search of um, in search of something greater and those who have that connection uh, connection to God who are able to um, draw on that uh, deep well of faith they're able to they're able to often deal with those illnesses in a much more productive way and often that means that uh, literally you can measure their immune systems and that has an effect they're they're able to respond to disease in healthier ways people who go to church tend to tend to live longer people who um, are engaged in spiritual practices do one researcher at uh, Duke University found or he estimated that the effects of not going to church, uh, the effects of the lack of spiritual, uh, lack of uh, spiritual involvement, was a- as unhealthy for people as smoking a pack of cigarettes every day for forty years. Wow. Now we we certainly can can talk about connectivity uh, of of the body's positive reaction to positive experiences. There are experiences that help help to release serotonin, and we feel better. We have a sense of being uplifted. Things of of this sort. Have we seen some scientific connection then in that arena in terms of um, involvement in spiritual life? I'm talking about things like prayer, like praise and worship. I mean, I would imagine if from a biblical perspective, we are designed, created in his image, and to serve and worship him, that it would almost uh, go without saying that the body would have some kind of a mechanism that uh, that positively reacts when we're connecting with God at that level. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the newest and among the most successful treatments of people with depression is prayer, simple prayer. Uh, now, that doesn't mean... Uh, Pray a few times, and and Jesus will heal you uh, right away. But it does mean that you know we tend to go immediately to the, the sort of pharmaceutical uh, uh, area in order to treat these things. But uh, one of the most common prescriptions now is for people to to turn to prayer, and it's effective, uh, and it works, and it works because prayer is literally healthy for your brain good for your brain, for you to be engaged in a spiritual pursuit, uh, gaining uh, a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Uh, It's healthy for your brain to be contemplating God and spend some time uh, meditating over Scripture, spend some time thinking of all that uh, Jesus, uh, especially at this time of year, came to to uh, be a human being on our earth. We can consider all the things that he he did, and when we spend some time in that sort of contemplation, it's incredibly healthy for our brain. Have scientists taken the time, Rob, to um, uh, to watch the way the brain reacts or responds to, um, for example, a praise and worship experience? I know that when I go into church and there is a, a rousing time of praise and worship. Um, it, it, it uplifts your spirit. Whatever troubles that you might have carried into the church with you from the week behind you uh, seem to just sort of melt away, and, and you, you definitely feel as if you've made a connection with God. I would wonder if scientists have ever taken the time to be able to study the brain and see what's going on 
at that time when people are experiencing that that worshipful connection with God. Yeah, they sure have. And uh, one study uh, almost jokingly said uh, when people are in worship, it's as though they're uh, addicted to drugs. Uh, One of the natural brain chemicals is oxytocin, and uh, heroin actually mimics that. Uh, And so you get, in a sense, according to uh, the researchers, um, you get a sense of this spiritual high. You are... um, you're with all of these people. There's a there's a social aspect there. Uh, you're with people that you know, people that you care about, people that you see week to week, maybe throughout the week, and that gives you a sense of uh, th- this uh, social uplift. And then connecting to connecting to God in in that kind of environment, it's a unique thing. And and uh, one of the ways that our brains are involved is through the through the production and reception of oxytocin. Uh, it's a it's a normal uh, brain chemical that helps us to to sort of feel uplifted and um, and that seems to be one way that that our brains are designed to have that special feeling of connection to God. You know, God works in the, through physical means all all the time when He works in our lives, and in that moment, uh, that uh, that uh, little boost of oxytocin is one of those ways. Yeah, it's interesting. During this holiday season, so often we hear reports of people getting uh, deeper in depression. They maybe have lost a loved one during this time of the year, so it's a, it's a difficult time for them. We see higher rates of suicide amongst individuals during the holiday season. What a wonderful message of encouragement for people to understand that a relationship with Jesus Christ goes uh, well beyond not just God's concern for our our relationship to him and the afterlife, but even God's concern toward how we are doing here on earth in the here and now, and that the benefits of that personal one-on-one relationship with him go so deep and so wonderfully connected that it can change and elevate even our mood and and, uh, the way we feel about ourselves. With us today is Rob Mole. His book is called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. We'll take a time out and come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think for a moment about the feelings that you first had when you first met your spouse, for example. Uh, there, there was something that happened deep inside of you. There was a connectivity that occurred. We are wired for intimacy, and our bodies react to it when, it when it's right. It stands to reason, therefore, that in that same sense in which the physical part of us reacts to uh, a loved one, there is that same sense of the way in which our body reacts to intimacy with God. We are, after all, created in very God's image. I've always been fascinated by the passage early on in Jeremiah where God speaks of having known Jeremiah while he was yet in his mother's womb. And so with that thought in mind, we're exploring this topic today of what our body knows about God. And with us today is um, author and journalist uh, Rob Mole. And and Rob, toward that end, I guess it stands to reason as much as we we see that wonderful release of all those positive chemicals that go on in the brain when we're when we're close to our uh, our spouse, when we're intimate with our spouse, same thing is true then I guess of God. 
Yeah, it sure is. I mean, when when researchers put uh, put someone into a, a brain scanner, it seems kind of sacrilegious to stick someone into a, a big machine and then and then tell them to pray. But we can find out some really interesting things when when that happens. And one of the interesting things is that the brain is working in this in this unique way. It's uh, different than if you were having another kind of emotional experience. So they looked at people remembering uh, fond uh, fond memories of uh, of friendship, feeling perhaps even the closest sorts of friendships that they've ever had, and remembering special moments. and And then they looked at those people remembering special moments with God and what that looked like in the brain. And, and they're actually really different things. The brain's doing something different, but not something unusual or not something that the brain isn't designed to do. Uh, and one of the fascinating things is as we, as we get closer to God and as we use our brain in this way to contemplate and, and meditate and pray to God, the brain is actually enhancing its uh, its senses of compassion, sort of the brain muscles around compassion and social awareness. So, as we as we grow in our love for God, we actually grow in our love for other people. So, as you as you mentioned, you know, as we connect with people, we're also connecting with God. As we connect with God, we're also connecting with people. When you were writing this book in the middle of this project, um, your wife went through a pretty difficult experience, um, which I, I guess made aspects of, of this book a little bit challenging. Talk to us about what was going on with your wife, uh, Clarissa. Yeah. We were about six weeks after the birth of our child, and, and Clarissa started having panic attacks. I'd never seen someone with a panic attack before, but it's a, it's a frightening thing. Uh, this overpowering sense of uh, a sense of uh, that you're going to die. This sense of something is drastically wrong. Um, I need to, uh, 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 you know, my, my my life is unraveling. Uh, my world is unraveling, and I'm going to die any minute. Uh, it's a it's it's actually a horrible thing to witness, and. This was going on over and over and over again, and what we found as we as we uh, sought help and, and talked to people and talked to experts was it's actually uh, not unusual for someone after after birth to go through a post postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression. Uh, so, what one of the things that was happening was that the levels of neurochemicals that she was able to use neurochemicals like we've talked about, serotonin and, and oxytocin and things like that, were at a really, really low level. So she, she wasn't able to, to function properly. And what, I, what, I, what the challenge for me as I'm writing this book and writing about the, the glorious design of our bodies to be able to worship God and to, and to love others, was that here... The, you know, in this sort of miraculous moment of, of birth and welcoming new life into the world, uh, we're also dealing with uh, my wife's body that had gone so drastically wrong. Uh, and I had to, I had to find, I had to seek some answers around. Well, how are we? What, what am I supposed to think about? Especially if I'm going to continue writing this book, what am I supposed to think about? our bodies design when they go wrong how am i supposed to think about god and suffering and and these were these were pretty tough questions for a while digging into that and i think it was important for the integrity of the book to do so uh, what were some of the conclusions that you were able to draw for yourself 
Well, you know, you look at you look at scripture, and uh, especially at Job, and God doesn't really give Job a a terrific answer when he when he wants to know why he went through this suffering. Uh, God essentially answers, "I'm God," <laughs> um, and and one of the things that we see in Jesus is that uh, even Jesus suffers. Uh, and not so much that that uh, God gives us an answer or, or the kind of explanation that we are seeking when we ask God about suffering, but but we see that Jesus has suffered with us. And so, as I looked, in, you know, in the in the physiology and biology, what what is what are we supposed to? How do we make sense of this? One thing I found was that one of the healthiest things that we can do when we are suffering is actually to help other people. Uh, I talked to somebody who had gone through a similar experience of panic attacks, and uh, and he went to a, a Christian psychologist, uh, not knowing that this this woman was Christian, and she said, "Okay, your your path back to health to health is going to be to help people." And she gave him a task every Monday. She she gave him a task of, uh, you know, go to the soup kitchen, uh, help someone across the street, do these very um, very mundane but very important actions of helping another person. And that was actually his route back to health. Uh, so our bodies are designed to to be helping other people, to respond to suffering. And I think that that's that was the answer for me that uh, when when humans were suffering alienation to from God, He sent His Son to die for us uh, in response. And and when when we are suffering and when we see others suffering, we're designed to respond and and alleviate that help alleviate that pain. We will find individuals that will, for example, during this time of year, uh, during the holidays, uh, suffer from one form or another of depression that in more extreme forms can certainly lead to panic attacks similar to what uh, your wife is experiencing on a postpartum basis. And it's fascinating to note how often, as you suggest, that just the very idea of getting the focus off of how you're feeling and your experience and focusing on somebody else whose circumstances or needs are, are, are bigger or more severe, how that can entirely change your outlook and suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I'm here doing all of this and engaged in helping this person, and I'm no longer feeling depressed. I'm I'm no longer having to deal with the panic attacks. And it's amazing to see the way God sort of builds into our system this ability to to do unto others that oftentimes be a form of worship as well. And in doing so, all of a sudden, the body has a way of, of healing itself, doesn't it? That's right. You know, one of the one of the interesting things uh, of research recently is that you know mental health is uh, you, your mental health is best when you're not really thinking about yourself. Um, when, as C.S. Lewis talks about, you can't go around uh, looking for how can I experience joy today. Uh, you experience joy when you're finding joy in the things that you do, uh, and in the same way, mental health. Um, you know, we are healthier as people. When we are engaged, when we are concerned not for ourselves, 
but for those around us, those who we care about, those that we are living our lives with, our family members, our friends, uh, those, those in our church communities, uh, the people at work. That's really where we find meaning and purpose and then therefore a healthy life. Rob Mole, the book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We're Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. Rob, thanks so much for the insights. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at Bay Area Christian Bookstores. Great holiday gift. Also through Amazon.com. Thanks again to uh, Rob Mole for being with us. Details, too, about his work on the web at com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The nation that, for those of us that perhaps are over over 50, wonder what's happened to our country. And uh, wanting to, at one level, engage in the fight to make America a Christian nation again. And yet, on the other hand, maybe being compelled to ask an even more important question. And that is, how can we, right where we live and work and play and engage do a better job of engaging the culture all around us. There was a time and an age when you had to get on an airplane with a passport and travel to another part of the world to engage in the mission field. And today, the mission field is literally right out your front door, almost anywhere you live in America, and certainly anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what of this idea of living missionally right where you live today? Well, we've invited... Jim Ramsey, the Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, to join us with some insights uh, to that very question. And Jim, a delight to have you on the program. It's good to be here. First, I'm curious about your own journey. You left high-tech for the mission field. I understand you and your family spent uh, 10 years as missionaries in Kazakhstan, and that's uh, that's quite a transition. Yes, it was. Um, we we felt called to mission from from an earlier age, but it wasn't like a, a major, you know, sudden surprise to us. We always knew we wanted to serve, but the Lord had provided the IT work as something I could do while I was preparing, working through seminary, and we were starting our family. But it was a change. We uh, were in our early thirties when we when we moved from uh, small town Kentucky to a city in Central Asia, in the country of Kazakhstan and served there for 10 years. And, of course, now you're here uh, back in the U.S. and serving as vice president of uh, Mission Ministries with the Mission Society, as we mentioned. And uh, uh, your your background, I think, as a missionary qualifies you in many ways, uh, Jim, uniquely to help us better understand and address this question, because, as I suggested, it wasn't that many generations ago when engaging in missions work to other people and cultures and society in places that were very different of us meant getting a passport, hopping on an airplane, and heading overseas. And today, that largely means getting up and going to work in the morning, doesn't it? No doubt. I think that, uh, that missions has really become from everywhere to everywhere and that people can, can be involved in mission wherever they are. And I think uh, in some ways that's a positive. We still will always be people who will get on a plane and go because uh, there's some places in the world that will never hear the gospel if somebody doesn't do that because there's nobody around. But having said that, uh, we all know I, I think you have to be in a cocoon uh, to not realize there are incredible needs and opportunities for sharing the gospel here in our own home country. Let's talk about attitudes concerning that very issue. I mean, there is a certain notion that believers have that we, we should live in such a fashion as we, we share our faith, we share the evangel or the, or the gospel with others. Uh, and yet, at least through the decade of the, the 80s and 90s, and, and maybe even to a certain degree today, um, a lot of uh, Christians... Um, do a good job at expressing our frustration 
over what we see going on in our culture and society today. You witnessed the news story that I shared um, at the top of the segment here. Uh, and we do a good job at that, and yet um, maybe our experience or our, our capacity to share our frustration is better honed than our capacity to actually share our faith. And again, at the end of the day, the question is, which of the two will have the greater impact on society around us, sharing our frustration or sharing our faith? I think you really hit on the, the crucial issue that I think the American church and the evangelical church in particular really is facing. I shared a story uh, in an article I wrote recently that, that really points this out. It was some years ago. We were still in Kazakhstan serving, and I had a, a friend who was on the faculty of a, of a small liberal arts college in the East here. And it was a college with a great Christian tradition, but like so many colleges, it had kind of wandered from that tradition in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he asked this question of me. They were about to engage some policies that were, were clearly in opposition to the biblical understanding of the faith. And, uh, and he was kind of fighting the policies and just getting really frustrated and, and feeling like he was fighting a losing battle. And he asked me this question. He said, I'm wondering if, if my mistake is trying to maintain the Christian identity of this institution, or should I learn what is it to live missionally in a non-Christian institution? And he was talking to me because as a missionary, he said, maybe I should have more of the thought of a missionary who doesn't expect the host culture to be Christian than to kind of try to fight for that. And I think that's the, the key question that, that we are faced as believers in this culture is, is which are we going to fight to, to maintain the culture? Or are we going to live missionally to invite people into a different uh, way of living? Well, certainly the mentality for many, many years, and we've seen this articulated at, at a national level, be historically by the likes of, of a Jerry Falwell or the likes of a Pat Robertson and others, and that is that we there's a degree to which we have to fight to maintain the culture. Certainly that notion of being um, salt and light uh, makes sense at a degree, but I wonder if there's also a great degree, Jim, to which we kind of longingly look back toward a different time in America where we perceived it to be a Christian nation when, in fact, that's never really been entirely an, an accurate moniker for our country. And so it's almost as if we're, we're fighting to maintain something that in the truest form never really truly existed in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I have to ask that question. I know it, it's it's not always popular to, to question that, but you think about that we sometimes do pine for the great years in the 50s when we were a Christian country, and yet if you look at some of the things that were in place and the rules, some of the treatment of people in our country in the 1950s, I think all would agree it was far from Christian, um, especially if we look at some of the, the racial issues going on in our country at the time. So I think we, we sometimes have some selective memory. I, I don't mean to imply, therefore, there have been huge challenges, and certainly the, the Christian faith has fallen out of favor with the dominant culture. Uh, but I think sometimes in our, in our memory, or our, our selective memory, uh, we kind of pine for the yesteryear, and I, I really question, is that, is that what God would have us do, or is he looking for us to forge what does it look like to be a Christian in today's context rather than trying to recreate yesterday's context? And is that maybe because it's just easier to fall back to that position? There's a lot less uh, demanded of us in doing so. I mean, let's face it, we'll, we'll talk to any generation and talk about the good old days and say, well, the, the good old days. Are we talking about the good old days of the Cold War in the 1980s? Would that be the good old days of the Vietnam War in the 1970s? Would be the good old days of, of uh, the, the spread of communism and, and enslaving the people throughout Europe in the 1980s? 
1950s, the good old days of, of the 1940s during the Second World War? Which phase of the good old days are we referring to? So it, it seems as if you're right. It's not only very selective memory, but sometimes maybe just simply an easier way to kind of default back to, because if mm-hmm. we can just um, vent our frustration over how things have changed, it really doesn't call upon us then to be engaged in the culture, to challenge the culture, to love the culture, to live, as you suggest, in a missional fashion, which means to understand that first and foremost, it is our job to be Christ's representatives on earth. And let's face it, there's a lot more work involved in doing that than just sitting back and complaining. I think so, and, and uh, one of my colleagues, Stan Self, uh, wrote recently, and I, I love this quote, he says, when we as evangelicals are so disheartened over the state of the Church in America, what are we bemoaning? Do we mourn the loss of Orthodox gospel preaching, or do we mourn the loss of our privileged place in society? Mm. And I think that's, that's a hard question, but I think we need to ask honestly, what, what are we upset about? Um, are we really upset about the true teachings of Christianity and the transformation that the gospel brings, or are we frustrated because the the kind of position of being the dominant um, the dominant understanding in the culture that being Christian was a culturally good and acceptable thing is that is that really what we're we're losing? That that means there's a higher cost of the faith than maybe we we did sense thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, probably very true. And along with that, I think, uh, coincides this notion that, let's face it, missional living in a very unchristian or hostile environment, uh, and, and certainly Christians in China understand this, Christians in the Sudan, as we speak, understand what this is like, it comes at a higher cost. And so you're right. The question is, when we talk about paying the price, is the paying the price because we're being inconvenienced, or do we understand that our very faith itself requires us to pay a price, that there is a price? for being counted amongst those that name Jesus as Lord and Savior. So maybe it's a good point for us to pause and engage in some introspection. You know, I use the Bruce Jenner story as kind of a jumping-off point because everybody's been talking about it around the water cooler over the last 24 hours, and many bemoaning this, this direction in which society seems to be headed, and yet There is a bigger question here that remains unanswered for believers, and that is, um, do we long for the days of the Christian culture, or are we willing to influence the world around us uh, to understand what it really means to live out our faith missionally in a non-Christian environment? Our conversation today with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In our conversations with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, we're talking about the challenges of living a missional life in modern-day America today. And, uh, Jim, certainly we've seen historically an effort in in trying to sort of uh, preserve uh, what America used to look like by means of changing laws in our country, certainly electing the right guy or gal to public office, and yet in spite of those efforts that uh, began in earnest in the 1970s and to a lesser degree perhaps uh, continue to this very day, uh, maybe we've slowed 
the demise towards uh, apostasy down, but certainly haven't prevented it or stopped it from happening, which maybe uh, maybe ought to call into question some of the methodology that we have used as believers uh, to to change society around us. And let me quickly add, I'm, I'm not suggesting here that we shouldn't try to be salt and light. We absolutely have, I believe, an obligation to do that. But at the core, if you want to change things, it really has to begin with changing the heart, doesn't it? I think so, and I and I would agree with with what you the kind of the caveat you said there is. I'm I'm certainly an advocate of Christians being involved in the public square. I think that that for us to isolate ourselves and say, well, you know, the whole country's going to going to pot, and we're just going to do individual evangelism and not care about who's elected, not care about what the issues are in the local in our local governments, our state governments, our federal government. I think that would be a big mistake. I think some of the question to me is the tone. Of, of the debate, I think sometimes evangelicals in these in these larger kind of culture wars, even the word culture war says something about about the approach. The, the tone is is very antagonistic. It, it's it's not attractive at all. And so, really, the only people that energize us are people who think like me. But it's not it's not going to be something that's going to make someone who who doesn't have faith really be interested in faith. And so, I think we have to recognize that it's it's our lives and our our tone uh, that really is going to make a difference. And, and as you said, that's going to happen at the relational level. Uh, now, let, let's put this in context. And again, your background as uh, having spent uh, the better part of a decade as a missionary in Kazakhstan, I think uniquely qualifies you to, to speak to this point. When, when you travel there with your family as a missionary, you're going into a country that had been under the cloak of communism for many, many years. And so there's a good percentage of people that live in the country that, that were good students of Marx and Lenin who were atheists. You have a nation that is 60, maybe 70 percent Islamic, a good percentage, probably 20, 25 percent uh, Russian Orthodox. And into that environment, you can you can certainly walk in and say, well, gee, you people don't think as I do. You don't believe as I do. What's the matter with you? Get your act together. I would suspect, though, that would not make you very effective as a missionary. So what are the lessons that you learned going into Kazakh society Jim, that, that you can maybe help us better understand what we as believers in America need to do in dealing with a different kind of culture and society in which we live today, that, that equally we, we, it's foreign to us to be sure, and yet as in need of the good news of the gospel of our Savior in America today as, as it was when you served in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I that's, that's the, the key, is that when we went to Kazakhstan, we expected a different culture. We didn't expect the host culture to behave as Christians. We we figured there was going to be good people, obviously, and there'd be good people in government, and everything. But but there's, there was no expectation that the host, the dominant culture, the government systems were going to be supportive of of the gospel. And so, by losing that expectation, we weren't there to fight that battle. But we were there, as you said earlier, to win the hearts and and, and minds of people by living among them, by getting to know them, by being in discipling relationships and planting the, the community of faith there. And and I think I think the community of faith, when people are living in faith in community, studying the Word and praying together and loving one another, it's extremely subversive. Uh, it, it really begins to change the culture from within, uh, as those people, as you said, become salt and light. But when we, we come at the culture in attack mode, then any time you go in attack mode, people go in defensive position, and that's, that's not going to be as appealing. So we... The, the difference is, with the Kazakhstan, we knew that, we expected that. Somehow, because America has, we, we, we've got the understanding of the so-called Christian nation, we don't expect that here, and we get offended when we come up against 
a hostile government, a hostile host culture, rather than just saying that's the way it is. So I think that's one thing we can learn from people, either missionaries or national believers, who have lived in contexts where there is not, where Christianity is not the dominant, the dominant culture. You use two words that are maybe key to this. You use the phrase discipling relationships. It's easy for us to enter into an environment that is not one that we believe is necessarily biblically based in nature and to launch into attack mode, meaning you shouldn't be going to mosque, you should be attending church with me on Sunday, etc., etc. I would imagine had that been your approach out the gate in Kazakhstan, you would not have been very successful at, at, at changing hearts and minds, but engaging in... My visa would not have been renewed. I would imagine so. But but engaging in discipling relationships, that also means that you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be in contact with people at a level in which you're able to speak truth into their life. And that really means gaining their trust, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that's, that's the key, is, is gaining trust, putting ourselves intentionally in communities with people who are different than us. And that... It has not been traditionally part of the evangelical culture so much within America. We're good at that as missionaries, but our own culture here, I, I heard somebody once say, you know, take the cell phone test, um, look through your cell phone contact list, how many of those are not believers? Um, um, and so I think we we don't sometimes, but by putting ourselves intensely in community with people where we're just sharing life with them, as you said, that, that gains the, the trust and the relationship, but then we can begin to share who we are in Christ, and, and that's that really is the making fishers of men that I think Jesus invited his disciples to. So if we want to effectively influence the culture around us, not only from the salt and preservative standpoint, but, but ultimately from the evangelical standpoint in, in winning people for Christ and growing the church, then it sounds like you're suggesting, Jim, that we need to kind of take on the same mentality that the missionary does as he or she is preparing to go overseas, meaning that you know that you're going into an environment that may be hostile in some ways toward your belief system and the way you worship and the way you think and the way you behave, maybe not understanding of many of those values and approaches, and yet you are going into their environment where they are the dominant language, the dominant culture. And so typically a missionary takes time to, at the very least, understand the culture, maybe even take time to understand the language. Certainly if you're going to live amongst them, that's that's critically important. And then you, you learn how to engage people from where they're at. That doesn't mean that you embrace what they think or do. That doesn't mean that to, to reach a Muslim you become one. But it does, though, mean that you have to be, what, a little bit more open understanding in order to, to, to gain permission to speak truth into their life? I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's the key is, is taking your time, listening, learning, genuinely respecting, desiring to know people. You, nobody wants to be a target. <laughs> So if you say, you know, this person is a target of my evangelism, that, that basically takes away the relationship, and you never saw Christ do that. Christ always, the person in front of him was the, had the full, his full attention at the moment. And I think we sometimes lose track of that when, when we think that these are, these are people who need to be objects of our evangelism rather than, than, than uh, people who we are seeking relationship with, learning God together, and then trusting, if we really believe the gospel is truth, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, then we can kind of chill out and just be in the relationship and, and let, let God do His work through us. Jim, I'm fascinated by this. Can you stay with us for one more segment? 
Sure. Just stand by for a minute. We're going to come back right after a quick timeout here. I want to get updated on some traffic before we get to too far afield. We've got Jim Ramsey with us, Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. He spent 10 years with his family in Kazakhstan as a missionary and now is back here in the States, as we mentioned, um, uh, serving as Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. And uh, he's written a recent article that caught my attention because it, I think, really calls into question uh, the way we live live out our faith here in America. All of us know, you've read the headlines, you hear the stories, we know that the culture and the society in which we live is changing and continues to change. And let's face it, a lot of this is not a march uh, back toward historical Christian and biblical values, but quite frankly, uh, in just the opposite direction. And yet we see ourselves in the middle of a culture war, and we think that means we need to pick up our guns and start fighting the enemy. Uh, but, But who is the enemy here? And are they people that are, you know, again, notches on the holster? Oh, we won one more? Is that what we were? They're, they're on a list, as Jim suggests? Or is it a matter of learning how to live out our faith missionally in an ever-increasing hostile non-Christian environment, in sort of that post-Christian environment that Francis Schaeffer spoke and wrote of, and, and, and to do so in understanding then ultimately what it means to, to share our faith and to lovingly attract others to us. Hey, there's a new concept. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 